Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal, Brent. I know that I've mentioned a time or two on the show that my first car was a 1974 Volkswagen Beetle, but I don't think I've ever gone into that great of detail about what a huge pain in the ass it could often be. Now, I would never go so far as to describe it as a piece of shit, but the car did have a number of issues that were less than ideal for a young man that relished in the freedom that came with driving. Just about every time I got in that car, I knew there was a strong possibility that it would not start. This was especially true during the winter months, when the colder weather would have some sort of effect on the car's battery, and it was almost certain that my mother would need to jump me off each morning in order for me to get to school. In VWs of that era, the battery was housed under the back seat, so during that time of year, I would mostly drive around with no back seat at all, because I would grow so tired of manhandling the seat out of the back of the car each morning. I had gotten pretty good at finding alternative ways to get the car running if it wouldn't initially start. When possible, I'd try to park on hills, and if the decline were able to give it enough momentum, I would pop it into second gear and often get it to crank that way. I'd also have to frequently recruit my friends to push my car with either their bodies or their own vehicles in order to do the second gear trick. That car really became the bane of my stepfather's existence, as he was the one that was constantly having to work on it, and oftentimes having to figure out how to get it back to our house after it had broken down on the side of the road somewhere. There was this one evening in which my car was being a real jerk. That night, I happened to be hanging out with this one girl that I had strong feelings for, that didn't always reciprocate those feelings, but that's another story entirely. But we were just hanging out, riding in my car, and it breaks down about three miles away from my house. When my stepfather arrived, he was able to get it cranked, but found that the only gear in which the car would move was in reverse. So to avoid paying for a tow truck, he drove that car in reverse all the way home down a dark, winding road as I followed closely behind in his truck. So yeah, it could be a really annoying car. But during the times in which it was somewhat functional, being able to drive it felt really amazing. For me, as a teenager who had fully bought into the romance of driving, it was through this car that I felt like the possibilities were endless. And as a teenager who had also fully bought into the romance of music, it was natural that these two loves would come together to create some formative experiences. Now, of course, in a car like that, to be able to listen to music required both patience and strategy. Every bump in the road was felt in that car. Any inconsistency to a flat surface such as potholes, rocks, branches, etc., would often cause the CD to skip and sometimes shut the whole listening experience down. For certain CDs of mine, if I wanted to be able to fully enjoy them, I had to drive with a bit more caution, be more aware of my surroundings. But I was willing to put in the work. Some records just deserve that extra bit of effort that goes into being able to hear them. One particular record that definitely contributed to me being a more responsible teenage driver 
is When Your Heartstrings Break by the San Francisco-based band Beulah. I'd first become aware of Beulah through their association with the Elephant Six Collective, a musical community whose embrace of the DIY spirit in regards to home recording was especially inspiring and made me believe that the possibilities were endless. Being a fan of that scene, it was a given that I'd eventually find my way to Beulah. I remember finding their songs, Maroon Bible, and my horoscope said it would be a bad year on Napster. But when I went on CD Now, the only record they had available for purchase was at that time their most recent release, When Your Heartstrings Break. And though I had not heard anything off of it, I just knew, especially with that title, that it had to be a record for me. So I ordered myself a copy of Beulah's 1999 sophomore record, When Your Heartstrings Break. And when it arrived at my house, I got in my car, crossed my fingers that it would actually crank, and then I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Yeah, my name is Bill Swan. I'm the other founding member of uh, Beulah, Miles being the guy. both had our own bands going. I started out doing lead singer-songwriter stuff for my bands, and Miles was doing the same thing. And then when it came time to do Beulah, I pretty much ended up exploring everything other than being the lead singer-songwriter of a band. So uh, I started out playing drums on our first thing, and I was taking some music classes um, recording at SF State. And so anyway, I ended up sort of recording the first two records too. Quasi-engineer, if you want to call it, doing the best I can. So I played guitar, trumpet, I played drums early on. I was kind of like the Bugs Bunny of the band, you know? I'd, whatever the song needed. <laughs> if they, if somebody had a banjo laying around or whatever, I'd play that. Or we, wheeling in tubular bells, uh, I could do that. Yeah. So yeah, kind of the multi-instrumentalist, I guess you would say. And I sang a lot of sort of harmony vocals, and sometimes I'd double up with miles and stuff like that. Multi-instrumentalist Bill Swan would spend the majority of his childhood in central Wisconsin, and it is at an early age that he would fall in love with music. I grew up in uh, Berlin, Wisconsin, per- spelled like Berlin, Germany, but pronounced Berlin. Small town, pretty much smack dab in the middle of the state. Uh, our thriving metropolis was Oshkosh. Yeah, when I first met my wife, she's like, you mean Oshkosh is really a place? I'm like, yeah, but sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I grew up there. I'm the youngest of three. I think my mom tells this story where I used to get this cheap record player. It was like one of those plastic ones, you know. I don't remember the bands. For all I know, it was like Fisher-Price, you know. And uh, I would walk around with that record player everywhere, and I'd have like these 
seven inch singles on my thumb and um, I was very uh, attached to it according to my mom and I think one of the records I had was I Can Help by Billy Swan because that was my name it was the same name Billy Swan you know my mom was a piano teacher so she was always playing the piano around uh, always had students over playing the entertainer and you know kind of the standard stuff some of her students were pretty advanced so I was exposed to that at a pretty young age and uh, and then she had a Panasonic tape recorder which I ended up boosting and using a lot I took that um, I and I started taping everything making radio shows putting the tape player next to the speaker of a radio station my clock radio and I'd be in there and between the, I'm be, mom I'm taping Shh, you know that kind of thing no direct inputs right and then, and then my mom was going back to graduate school studying, I forget what it was. And so I, she said, hey, would you be interested in taking violin lessons? So this was when I was around seven years old. And I said, sure. And there was, so there was this um, Suzuki method. It's a lot of the kids start when they're like three years old. I started when I was seven. So I was old amongst the beginners. I kind of fell into that and then switched to trumpet when it came time for a band in school. We didn't have an orchestra, so violin really didn't make sense. My brother played trumpet, so I was like, I want to play trumpet like my big brother. So, so yeah, I was the music. we were a pretty musical family. My brother and my sister both played. He played trumpet, my sister played French horn, and my dad played the flute. It is during his high school years that Swan would begin learning to play the guitar. So it was my brother's some cheap piece of shit that he had laying around he went off to college it had four strings left i was about to move to illinois and and in that summer i just started picking it up and just making things up with the four strings i had i i just would tune them to whatever i didn't really know what the standard tuning was and i just started noodling around on that the action was terrible you know i could barely press the thing down so yeah i started really noodling on that it wasn't until i got later into high school that i started taking it more seriously though I never took lessons for guitar I was self-taught on that I was into prog rock like Genesis and at one point I bought a songbook from Genesis thinking I could learn suppers ready you know and I got to maybe three chords and then that was about it and I just used those chords and I would start making things up after returning to Wisconsin for college Swan would make the decision following his graduation to relocate to California my best friend from just as I was leaving Berlin he and I, we knew each other in school, but we didn't really become close friends until the summer of my freshman year, between freshman and sophomore year. We kept in touch after that, and he went to Marquette, and I went to Madison. He and I were looking for apartments together in Madison. He was going to move to Madison. I had, like, a job at a bookstore after college. It was, like, the early 90s, so there weren't that many jobs for English majors, you know. So I had that job lined up, and then we had an unsuccessful day of apartment hunting, got drunk on two pictures of something and then on a whim I was like well maybe I don't want to live in Madison anymore and Jay- my friend Jason planted the seed to move out to San Francisco and it just so happened I'd been dating somebody the previous summer briefly who moved out there the year before so we had a place to crash we're like oh let's just see what happens and 30 years later I'm still here after moving to San Francisco Swan would start the band 17 Reasons which in turn would lead to his interest in learning to record music. We had a practice space shared with some other bands. 
guitarist in my band had a Tascam 238 8-track and a mixing board and a few things set up in there. And I just started playing around with it. He taught me signal flow. He was like, oh, this is where the signal goes. Uh, his name is Rick McKay. And then from there, I decided to take some adult classes at SF State. Um, and I learned a little bit more just about basics of signal flow and what phase is and that type of thing and that was right around the time I started sort of recording my own stuff a little more seriously and then and then Miles came into the picture. It is through his job that Swan would eventually meet California native Miles Karoski. In time the two would begin playing music together and start recording what would become Beulah's debut album Handsome Western States. I was working in a mailroom in the Transamerica Pyramid on the 11th floor for a stockbroker. And you had to wear a tie in a mailroom. So I was delivering mail to the trading floor. And, you know, people would kind of weave in and out of there. It was like seven bucks an hour, which I guess was worth a little more back then. But my memory of it is there was this guy named Tony who was just an alcoholic. And one day he just didn't show up for work. And then his replacement was Miles, so that's how we met. In the mailroom dynamic, we would like talk about music and stuff like that, and then um, a few people weaved out, and Miles was pretty quiet at first, and then then he started sort of speaking up, and we started, you know, talking about the Beatles and you know records like that. And he was in a band called Pocahontas, and it was a two-man band. It was him and a drummer, and they had put out like a record, and I was trying to put out stuff we were just different you know he was like oh you're mainstream man I'm like, whatever man fuck you you're a dick <laughs> he always used to say oh not a day in 95 i'm leaving this place i'm never gonna work here again i'm like yeah right bullshit and sure enough he he left and then he moved to lawrence kansas for a while and i lost touch with him and then randomly about a year later he came back in town and called me like he was like Hey, would you like to make a record? I'm like, what? <laughs> like, he knew I was recording, so I think he just needed somebody to help him put something together. We, we didn't have any really good equipment or anything, but it was, you know, it was all right. It was an eight-track. We had a four-track, too. We had, like, a test cam. I was like, yeah, sure, come in. Uh, this would have been, like, October of 95. And... Um, he just started playing acoustic guitar, and I'd play drums, and I'd record, just press record and see what happened. And that's kind of how Handsome Western States came about. We were just four-tracking and eight-tracking stuff at the practice space there. It was still kind of a side project for me. I had my own band. We were playing gigs and stuff. I was excited by it because it was everything other than what I was doing in the other band, which was being trying to be the front person and doing an adequate job, I guess, but it wasn't really what I was enjoying at the time. Following Handsome Western State's completion, the music would eventually find its way to Robert Schneider and Hilary Sidney of Denver, Colorado's The Apples and Stereo. Schneider, who was also a co-founder of the Elephant Six Collective, had since the early 90s released music by various projects associated with the collective through a small label also named Elephant Six. Schneider would express an interest in releasing Beulah's music through the label, and in 1997 would release the band's debut 7-inch, A Small Cattle Drive in a Snowstorm, 
Later that same year, the label would release Handsome Western States. My recollection of it was um, there was a mutual friend who was from Denver that lived in the same apartment as Miles did, and so, I, and I think when Miles was out in Lawrence, Kansas, he had seen the apples on a tour. Yeah, so that's I think it was through a mutual friend and how Robert and Hillary got a hold of what we were doing, and I think they were trying to do like a label. And so we were like, sure, <laughs> you know, we weren't even a band yet at that point. They liked what we were doing, so we ended up putting together that 7-inch and then the full record. We didn't know anybody from the Athens crew. Miles knew about them before I did. Um, and he sent me some Neutral Milk Hotel stuff, some early stuff, which I really liked. After Tants of Mustard States was done, our first show was opening for the Apples and um, Olivia Tremor Control, and I think the music tapes were on there. And I, I don't think the Athens people took to us very well, or for, for, for whatever reason, I don't, I don't know. I just didn't get the sense they liked us all that much, to be honest. But whatever, you know. I can see why it might be like, this is our thing and it's becoming this thing. And who are these people? Like, I don't even know these people. They're in California. Like, I've never met them. Like, who the fuck are these guys? With the release of Handsome Western States, the decision is made to put a proper band together in order to play shows. Musician Steve LaFollette, who had previously recorded with Karoski and Swan on the track SOS from their debut 7-inch, would join the group primarily as a bassist drummer Steve St. Sin, and keyboardist Pat Knoll would join soon after. It would have been 97, early 97, I think, because by then we knew that Handsome Western States was going to get released, and we were going to do a small tour with the Apples in the fall. I think by then we knew that. So we needed to put a band together. And so I brought in a friend of mine, Steve St. Sin, who played in another band... Um, that my band had opened for at one point and they had just broken up so I'm like hey I know of a drummer we can talk to him or whatever and maybe practice with him and see if it'll work and by then I think Steve LaFollette had already been in the picture one of his bands was in the same practice space they were kind of like a cover band called shitty shitty band band they were like they would do like Herb Alpert covers and stuff and like 60s stuff his brother went to college with Miles so that's how they got to know each other uh, and then we went to go see Pavement like that summer. They played at the Warfield and the Apples opened for them and they were at the merch table. That's when I met Robert and Hillary for the first time. And then Steve came along too, St. Sin. And Miles was like, hey, you want to be in the band? Great, you're in. I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> we hadn't even. Oh, yeah. So it was just friends. of And actually, Steve and Steve LaFollette um, knew each other from UCLA. Or I don't know if they knew each other. UCLA but they went at the same time this would have been like 
when the Paisley Underground and all that kind of stuff was happening. So it was just those two. And then a little later, I was out of town. And then uh, Miles's friend, Pat Knoll, joined us a little bit later. He was in the band by the time I came back. I was like, oh, hey, nice, nice to meet you, Pat. Miles and Pat had played together in a band before. Miles was the bass player for Pat's band when they were, like, going to um, college. I forget where. UC Riverside, maybe? Something like that. Pat's from the Central Valley, from Visalia. He had more of a Neil Young kind of country, almost, sensibility about him. So, And then we had La Follette, who was all about... I mean, he knew every like garage band from the 60s you can think of. And then Steve was playing drums for sort of this... I would say it was a little Wilco-y or like a Uncle Tupelo or No Depression kind of stuff. So we just sort of meshed together. And then we had to kind of figure it out. So we were still figuring it out when we started touring that tour with the Apples in the fall. It is while on tour that the band would begin to develop some of the material that would make up their next record. So Heartstrings really was kind of the, at least the first half of the record were songs that we had sort of developed as we started playing together as a band. I forget exactly how some of these came about, but by the time it came to record them, the music was ready, but we didn't have lyrics. We had the vocal melodies, but we didn't have lyrics yet. And sometimes we'd even play some of these songs live, but Miles would just have like mumble lyrics. You couldn't really hear anything in the clubs anyway, so you could sing about like your cat's, you know, vagina or something it wouldn't matter <laughs> oh. when the time came for the band to begin work on their sophomore record swan as he had previously done on their earlier releases would once again serve as the main engineer with steve la Follette subbing on the occasions in which swan was unavailable heartstrings in that way was pretty stressful for me personally so we started recording Heartstrings in May of 98. And we had a deadline. I forget why we had a deadline, but we needed to get it done by, like, the fall of 98. And I don't remember why there was a deadline, but there was. <laughs> so we bought some equipment. So I think Miles got a 16-track, half-inch reel-to-reel off of Recycler.com. And we had somebody down in L.A. ship it up. It was a Tascam MS-16. I had. I ended up owning that years later. And so we started recording in the same practice space that we recorded um, Handsome Western States. But the stakes were a little higher. We had better equipment. We wanted to make a better record. We wanted to do it as a band. I kind of pivoted to the, the engineer. I was kind of like, you know the, the IT guy that, like, if something goes wrong, everybody looks to the IT guy and said, hey, can you fix this? It was one of those deals. I was not mentally prepared for that pivot. It was sort of like, okay, my job was to try and figure out how to take it to the next level as best I could. We had the same mixing board. It was a Fostec 16 channel. I don't even remember the name of it. It at one point had belonged to my friend Rick, but he bought a different board. And and I bought it off for him for like 200 bucks. It had a decent clean signal. My philosophy as far as recording went was to get as decent of mics as we could we borrowed uh audio technica 4044 i think is what it's called 
a condenser mic. And we had a couple of 58s and an AKG drum mic and a Caddy 100, which was something that Robert Schneider had recommended. Our first session, I was trying to record drums and our drummer, and I didn't really feel like I did a very good job. And I think Miles had me talk to Robert to give me kind of a pep talk. <laughs> He's like, hey, here's some ideas. I tried to um, apply what I'd learned at the school, get a good, clean signal, and just do the best that we could. And we took more time and care at it, whereas like Hansel Western Sage was just sort of like the two of us sort of taking our time over the course of a year whenever we had the time to get together. We finished stronger than we started, let's put it that way. But with heartstrings, it was like, okay, stakes are higher. We need to like make a really good, clean-sounding record. And Miles was very perfectionist about that. He wanted to make sure that all the tracks were clean of any like extraneous noises and stuff. We put a lot of care into the small details like that. And we took a lot of time just recording the instrumental stuff and perfecting that and trying different instruments and, you know, just throwing the kitchen sink at it. And we left the vocals for the very last month at the very end. (laughs) that was pretty stressful we had to map it out i wish i i was digging through some stuff to try to find my old notes because i did take notes i had read mark lewison's book on the complete beatles recordings when we were on tour on a spring tour in 98 before we started recording it so i was firing myself up for this i was like okay i'm gonna take notes like that and but the the track sheets we only had 16 tracks to work with and we only used at the most four for the drums you know some people would like throw 12 tracks on drums like here let's isolate the hi-hat like give me a fucking break right (laughs) but but like you know we had four at the most to work with you know so that would leave us with 12 um now that i look back we it was just like a it was like fucking playing tetris you know like you had to fit everything in somewhere well shit i mean sergeant peppers was recorded on a four track they always say but yeah but they also had professionals who knew what they were doing, so <laughs> it wasn't an unpaid position for them. <laughs> With this newfound increase in fidelity, the band would also begin to incorporate into the arrangements instrumentation not heard on previous efforts. To accomplish this, a number of guest musicians are brought in, many of which came to the band through their associations with Steve LaFollette and violinist Ann Mellinger. Yeah, she's a friend of Miles's who had also contributed some vocals and stuff on his band Pocahontas, which was the name of the band before Beulah. I forget how they were friends, but yeah, they were. She was. She sang some and played some violin on Handsome Western States, and then she had some friends um, who would play. They had this sort of get-together amongst like string players, string people. They called it the Beer and Bach Quartet. They would get together once a week and drink beer and play Bach. Like beer and Bach. That's how we brought in a lot of the string players. Sessions for the record would take place at various locations, including the band's practice space and homes of collaborators, as well as some after-hours work at the Linda Mood Bell Learning Center. It was um, where Pat Knoll worked. He worked for uh, this, um, I forget exactly, it was people with learning disabilities. And so it was an actual office, like there were cubicles in there. And and we did that at the very end to record vocals. So the practice space, the idea there was to record the basic tracks, the drums. I usually recorded the bass direct through a DI. 
Um, anything that required a hot mic wouldn't have worked because there were other bands practicing in there. Or we'd have to go like on a Sunday morning when all the rockers were fast asleep and not, you know, practicing in there playing whatever loud shit they were doing. I was feeling claustrophobic about it. I, I wanted to get out of that room as much as possible and try and record somewhere else because it was really just sweaty, shag carpet on the wall, smelled like cigarette butts, you know, it was just the classic, like, practice space. And it was sort of slapped together. I think there were some questionable uh, grounding techniques and electrical. I think Miles, at one point in one practice, actually had an electric shock. We had to, like, take his hand off the guitar there was all sorts of shit like that in there it was not ideal the drums were all done in there um and anything electric and that was loud was all done in there anything like vocals or strings we actually went over to somebody's house at and i think it was ann mellinger's house actually and her friends were over and they had these big high ceilings in there and we just recorded all the strings at once for all the songs that we did on one one or two days over there. And I was like, wow, this is so great. And I can just grab a cup of coffee over here and maybe throw a pot of tea on the kettle or whatever. It's like, I wish we could just record like this you know, at a house somewhere. With the majority of tracking complete, Karofsky and Swan traveled to Denver to work with Robert Schneider on the album's final mix. So, yeah, we took the tape machine. Miles is very worried that it was going to get out of alignment so we'd like put it in the front seat of the car strapped it in the seat belt like probably i don't know bungeed it to the seat so that it wouldn't move very much or whatever it was he and i got a rental car and we drove out to denver with that thing and then set up at robert's pet sounds studio out there which was like a house or like an apartment, but essentially like a room in there. So we mixed in there for like two weeks, and then I left after two weeks, and he and Miles finished the mix after that. I remember reading like the Ken Starr fucking expose when I was in Denver, <laughs> when we were in Denver. I'm like, oh man. And in the end, they made a record. Heartstrings Break opens with Score from Augusta, a track in which the band avoids the lush instrumentation that will color much of what's to come and embodies what Beulah as a five-piece rock band is uniquely capable of. The core of the band's sound is present on this track, 
touches of fuzz, layers of keyboards, Bill Swan's essential trumpet lines, and the coupling of sunny melodies with Miles Karoski's less than upbeat lyrics. As is with the case of this song, lyrics that evoke images of the American Civil War. It's the perfect introduction to this record in that it gives the listener a taste of what to expect without revealing everything that is to precede it. It's a good way to start a record. Representation of what we were as a band. I think it was one of those songs that we would play that didn't have lyrics, but we played anyway. Pat Knoll had his sort of Roland Juno swoopy thing. And then Steve LaFollette had kind of a fuzz bass. I was St. Sin on drums. I think I know there's a little piano in there. Steve LaFollette was actually the best keyboardist in our band, but somehow he got foisted to the role of being bass player. But he's all over this record on piano, organ, everything else. He played some guitar, sort of fuzzy kind of... Anything that sounds vaguely 60s garage is probably Steve LaFollette. I think this first song, though, Score from Augusta, I'm trying to think, and maybe just some sort of like hammering on the piano thing was him it was either him or pat we know who the trumpet player was probably as far as instrumentally that's probably my best instrument i mean i i learned through the school we had a really good music program i learned all sorts of things i just wanted to be miles davis though (laughs) Uh, no way i'll ever be able to play like that but we were always trying something different a lot of it you know too was miles would have lots of just ideas like you know at one point the thought was to like hire a mariachi band to come you know in and play a session with us you know from like we'd be out of taqueria or hey can we hire these guys and have them come in like i can probably replicate what this part of the song needs you know that kind of thing the scenery rides by just like floats lost in a parade where the palms and tumbleweed sail right past the homes they stretch and they fade Rolling like movie credits Far beneath the clear skies How weary does the West carry So many sights Yeah, let's see the sights Slow prayers with no answers Must go somewhere Far away The expertly crafted Sunday Under Glass sees the band expanding the record's sonic palette, incorporating strings and flute into the band's dynamic arrangement built around the sustained hums of a harmonium-like sound. So if somebody's playing like an organ, the, the staccato is like an organ, I forget who's playing that, or if it's some kind of like cheap pump organ type thing. I think that was Stevie playing little... Uh, we're going to call him Little Stevie for now. Steve LaFollette, he was like bigger... Uh, taller than Steve St. Sin, but St. Sin was big Steve. But anyway, um, Stevie played that, and I played a melodica. It was like you blow through it. But, you know, I played that, I think. I definitely played that, because like, horn player, blow through something. For the chorus, Miles would often hum something out, like he would sing something, you know, we'd never, you know, 
rock. You don't always chart things, right? You just sing something, and then I would play it. And then that was just regular trumpet, and then for the after chorus, yeah, it was a Harmon mute. The Miles Davis mute. Steve LaFollette, it's his song, pretty much. I think he brought it in, and maybe Miles made some changes and added a few things to it, so they're, they wrote, it's, they're credited to writing it together. It was one of Steve's songs. One of the few, you know, that was outside of Miles' song writing. So this has got Steve LaFollette's stamp all over it for that reason, just the chord structure for some of it. And, um, I don't remember which is which in terms of who contributed what. Um, is definitely the intro and all of that is definitely, I think, Steve's. And the chorus. Pretty sure those are Miles' lyrics. Just about the West... It almost sounds like an advertisement for the West or something, you know, like, come out West. Following Sunday Under Glass, we get the buoyant guitar pop of Matter versus Space. keyboard we borrowed from somebody i forget who it might have even been ann mellinger's keyboard i can't remember it's a friend of miles had it for years i played it on stage uh in the early days you know it had drum sounds where you could play on the keys of it so it was originally you know the part was you know steve played drums throughout but we decided in the intro to have it electronic so i did it by hand on this little piano it wasn't like a sequence it was just me you know, hitting the uh, black key with my right index finger and like the snare or no, it was like a whatever it was, like a little and then alternating the bass with my middle finger, (laughs) you know, it's totally like three fingered drums on a keyboard thing. We muted the drums for that part and overlaid it with with the keyboard. Yeah, that's Pat on the on the Juno probably. That was that was his instrument of choice in our early live shows. He had that Juno and uh, anything that's sort of moogie. I don't think we actually used a Moog for this record. One of Pat's friends, Bill Evans, joined us for the Heartstrings tours, and he brought a Moog with him. 
but wasn't until after we'd finished the record. And I don't think we, as far as I know, we might have had some Moog when we went to uh, Tiny Telephone. But this was definitely, this was all um, from the Juno, I think. And then me doing sort of a mariachi amalgamation a little bit, sort of these exaggerated vibrato. I'm not much help with the lyrics. I think Miles being at a party and not wanting to partake in the boring conversation. So what I think. On the porch with the smokers, party talk gets much older. That's the essence of what I take from the song. It's just like not wanting to be there. But I could be wrong. It might have been, I don't know what matter versus space, where that's probably some drunken party argument about, you know, something like that. He's going to laugh at me if he hears this. Oh, this has nothing to do with what I was thinking. Just society in which a Beulah's greatest hits compilation existed. We're talking double LP, 180 gram vinyl edition with extensive liner notes. And side A, track one, would have to be Emma Blowgun's last stand. Constructed around a repeating synth line on which various instrumentation weave in and out, the track slowly climbs to a release of hornlet exuberance along with some of Karoski's finest set of lyrics, which center on a protagonist who's been framed with a beautiful name.
It's amazing in a way that how it's such a simple song. It's just like it's the same thing pretty much almost throughout the whole song. It's ironic that that's like when you look on a streaming service or whatever, it seems to be the most popular one, which I never would have dreamed of in a million years. To this day, like I'm still blown away. Like I remember there was a show like maybe in Chicago, you know, when we did our first headlining tour and stuff. And people would like, were really, you know, the, the climax of that is like, you, know, you have this long buildup and then the trumpet comes in. I just remember people like, saying my name and stuff i'm like that's weird like i never dreamed that anybody would ever do that you know but anyway yeah so there was a song off of handsome western state called slow-mo for the masses Lipstick stains and they're all in shorthand where everything's a quarter mile high. The cup leaves rings in the sunshine, pours in where you can mine the glass box until it breaks. He was practicing it, I remember, just on an electric guitar. We were in the practice space, and he was just playing it and singing it. And I happened to track it, just kept the tape rolling for whatever reason, and we ended up using it. It was actually right after a, the song before it had went out, and he just kept going on this, and then we just kept it. But anyway, when it came time, to do, we decided to do it live, this ended up being the live version of that song, and he would sing that bit over it, except there was one inversion of a chord progression in the sequence. And so we took the instrumental version of that, and that became the intro for M. Blowgun, with one chord change flipped around. This was one of those things where it was like, okay, we'd been playing it live for a long time, so we kind of knew what we were doing. So yeah, so the instrumental part uh, was pretty easy to do. So that's how that came together. It was kind of an aha moment recording in the early part of this recording too, because I remember we did this bit and then I did the trumpet line. I would record that and it just sounded weak. I'm just, ugh, what is, it just sounds terrible, like really thin. And I don't know, at some point we're like, all right, well, let's try it again. We end up doubling it. I'm like, oh, so the simple act of doubling a trumpet it, it's sort of like if it's the same player you get this phasing effect i'm like this is what herb alpert does doesn't he this is what he does and it just came alive after that and then it just was like wow that was it that was all we needed if any song is our anthem that's probably the one it just has that anthemic build up to it and the keyboard is there throughout and there's two songs on this record that are informed by Eno's Here Come the Warm Jets, and this is one of them, uh, mostly in the trumpet line in this case. I kind of steal from it a little bit, but not entirely. I kind of nibble around the edges of it, so like, I hope I don't get sued for plagiarism like the guy from Men at Work did, you know. But anyway, that's another story. Everything's all right. The album's centerpiece, Calm Goes the Wild Sea, 
features layers of woodwinds, brass, and strings that give it an old world feel. But the track's true strength, like many on this record, is its thoughtful arrangement that skillfully conveys emotion through its use of both subtlety and expansiveness. Follette recorded that stuff while I was gone. He and I would rotate, especially at the end. I was starting to get fried. But also, I went away for a couple weeks um, on vacation, and he filled in while I was gone. The um, sarangi and stuff like that, the Indian instruments, I was not there for any of that. And I remember hearing it later going, God damn it, I really missed out on something awesome here kind of a blur now in terms of how some of the songs came together but there were a few on there that me and miles had tried and aborted during the handsome western state stuff like calm go the wild seas i think that's the very first thing that me and him tried to record in 95 like october of 95 it was our first session and our first attempt i think and it was a loud rocking sort of fuzzed out guitar thing and i was banging away at the drums and not doing a very good job feel like the glue on this this version was i think it was steve lafollette playing this i think it was a vox continental that thing was temperamental it's one of those where you where the like the sounds you could change the sounds it was like something you would pull out almost like a it almost looked like a thermometer that you put in your mouth or something you pull it out to get different sounds i'm having a visual of it being that and it was sort of this light blue color Although I think a lot of those Vox organs are like red from that era. I, to this day, maintain that it was light blue, but perhaps Stevie, Stevie LaFollette would know for sure. So it was his. I think I was probably there for the Vox bit and maybe the guitar. And I want to say maybe we did like the finger chimes when I came back. <laughs> And then we had uh, Anna Pichon, who was a friend of Steve LaFollette's, who played for the Redwood Symphony, who would end up touring with us at one point for Heartstrings. She played French horn on that. I don't, I don't remember meeting the flute player. It was a friend of Steve's, I think. It seems like a lot happened in the two weeks I was gone, huh? <laughs> Ballad of the Lonely Argonaut is unabashed West Coast pop, complete with lyrics that allude to the California Gold Rush and a Beach Boys referencing outro. Avalanche, and the boys are 
that was kind of a last minute thing. I think originally there was some drum fill that I would do in that part that either was played shittily or Miles is maybe like, I want to do something different there. So, yeah, in the mix it was fun because I'd have to mute that out live. You know, like mute the, the drum part just for, and then bring it in, you know. Before, before automation, yeah, the mix was a whole other beast because it was, in some songs, it was like the three of us would be all actively doing something on the board like we were playing a big instrument because we didn't have any automation. So it was like, it was like rehearsing to play a song on the piano or something. Played drums on this one. And the next couple on this, on, I guess this is the beginning of side two, maybe, if we even call that anymore. Yeah, I played drums on that for some reason. I don't know why. It might have been because there was a fill in there. It, it, was, it might have been one of those which was fairly new that we hadn't really worked out as a band on the tour before. And it might have been one of those where we were running out of time. I'm like, I'll just do it because I'll be quicker. It has a little bit more of the handsome Western states sort of fuzzy things going on in there. And the one takeaway that I got as we were doing our thing from the Elephant Six stuff is the fuzzed out acoustic stuff that Neutral Milk Hotel would do. Just like completely, you can't really do that with digital so much, but with cassettes and tape, you could just like completely clip the whole thing and just. <laughs> so I think we had a little bit of that on this song. just under two minutes, the track Comrades 26 is able to accomplish a lot in a relatively brief amount of time. Anchored by Swan's expressive drumming, which goes from a drum fill heavy beat to a steady Mo Tucker style groove, the drums carry the song to its conclusion, with the band along the way bringing in a cathartic release of call and response trumpets, harmonized singing, and a barrage of buzzing sitar. That was lifted from some, like, Sounds of India record of some sort. We, But I changed the speed of it to match the song. I brought my turntable, and it had one word where you could change the pitch enough to get it to match. Well, I, what I probably had to do, maybe, is a, adjust the speed of the tape and the record player, because they both wouldn't maybe go far enough. So I probably had to match both of them so that it would fit the pitch. Wait, well, now you can do that on computers, like just dial in, like that's it. It's like we didn't have that back then. So at that point, we were doing vocals, starting off over at Steve's house for a short period. 
but we didn't end up doing vocals because I don't think Miles was comfortable singing over there. So we ended up doing more found sounds and stuff as we were running out of time to finish the vocals and ended up doing them over at Pat's and places like that. None of us were good enough on sitar to play that. <laughs> I don't remember who it was. It was just some random, like, found sounds kind of record you'd find in the dustbin or something, I think. Played drums on this one. For some reason, I ended up playing this. I'm trying to remember why. But, yeah. That Phil, I remember years and years ago, and, in fact, our second drummer, Danny Sullivan, was actually a high school pal of mine. We played in high school together in a band, and he joined us after Steve left. That was a fill of his that I copied. I hadn't really reacquainted myself with Danny yet at this point when I was doing that song, but I was thinking of him when I did that fill, trying to do my the best I could to, to match his playing on it. There was a whole verse and chorus. It ended up being like a, one bit of the song, and then it went straight to the bridge, and then, then that was it. I don't know the reason why it ended up getting shortened into what it became. That happened in the mix after I left. It ended up becoming a, like a medley thing. It was probably like Miles decided that the, the verse and the chorus <laughs> wasn't good, so I just cut the verse and the chorus and keep the rest of the song. It was pretty much what he did. It's just one of those deals that just sort of came together. I think that that ha that was a decision that was made in the mix. The Aristocratic Swells is a piano-driven number that evokes both the Beatles and the Velvets with just a dash of Stax records. That is uh, Stevie, I think. This is one where he has a pretty big stamp on it, though. Like, his, he's all over this record. Like, his sensibilities and stuff, so yeah. I think he and Pat may have played this together on piano uh, at Tiny Telephone, at least the piano part. You know how you do, like, you have one person on the low keys, like, do 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 and the other person on the high ones vamping away. I think it was one of those deals where they played together, banging away. Yeah. And that's La Follette's guitar riff, so he's playing guitar on that one, too. Pretty much all of the guitar, I think, and the bass. I played the drums. That was my contribution to that song. Yeah. 
As we near the end of the record, we get the wistful ballad Silverado Days, which sees Karoski once again evoking images of the Old West and creating a lyrical connectedness amongst a number of songs throughout this album and beyond. He does sort of return to the Old West and just Western sort of themology a lot, like his favorite Western guy growing up as a kid was Gene Autry, which he writes a song about. Um, which was actually one of the other outtakes that we had from Hanson. We have a um, version of that from the Hanson Western States days that we then abandoned until later. One of the few that are probably in the cutting room floor somewhere. I think that is um, the Juno, and I have it going through an amp with, t- and I think I also have it going through a tremolo and a delay um, pedal at conf- at conflicting speeds. I think the idea there was, you know, how like when you're when you do like when you're in a wave pool or something, or you're trying to do stuff where you just like create crashing waves in different directions to get, or like you're in a or let's say you're riding a boat and there's just boat wake from all different directions and the waves are crashing into each other in sort of conflicting and random. That was kind of the effect we're going for there. I'm thinking about this after the... F- I remember that being just... I'm just saying that out loud now. That was the idea, just have this sort of like disorienting kind of... Yeah. Unless it was the Vox, 
but it was definitely through a guitar amp with those two effects on it. It was a tremolo, like a slow tremolo, or maybe the tremolo was faster and the delay was slower. I can't remember which. We were in Denver and we added the trumpet because I think we'd maybe run out of time back home. We needed to get the mixing started. So I think we slapped it in there at the end. When I listen to it, I think I'm playing a little sharp. I'm being tough on myself, but yeah. It sounded great until the piano came in, and the piano was a little flatter than the treble. Like, Shit, whatever, doesn't matter. But it sounds great. is a solid piece of songcraft that includes touches of Baroque pop and psychedelia and nicely paves the way for the album's grand finale. There's a backwards um, guitar, except that the, the line was mapped out because a backwards thing is often sort of random. You just turn the tape backwards to get some kind of psychedelic thing. But what if you want the backwards sound to have a certain melody line? Like You either have to map it out or chart it out in your head what we ended up doing was playing a a forward track of the riff the way that we wanted to and then when we flipped the tape backwards we played you know playing it back along with that we played along with it the backwards version of it so it would be the same and then when we flipped it back over the backwards if that makes sense i don't know if i'm making sense so yeah and then, of course, you have to roll the whole tape forward and then switch the reel and go back. It's kind of like kids these days don't know how good they have it. <laughs> yeah, so that is, I think that's just a um, guitar played backwards, but alongside a, a scratch track played forwards that we played along with when we flipped it around. You get the weird backwards sound, but we had the melody that we exactly wanted. Them's version of um, uh, which Dylan song that was, Baby Blue, which then Beck incorporated, and we incorporated something similar as the arpeggios in the chorus. It's a two-part thing that Stevie does. I think I helped him with the harmony part of it a little bit. Yeah, that was the sound we were going for. But you know, I don't think it's that noticeable. Miles would always say, um, sometimes your best stuff ends up being like your failed attempts to imitate your heroes.
The album's closing track, and possibly one of the all-time greats in regards to rock song titles, is the energetic, If We Can Land a Man on the Moon, Surely I Can Win Your Heart. On top of a driving rhythm section, strings and horns make their final appearance and are once again utilized to great effect. The combination of this, along with its tender melody and winking homage to one of the Beatles' sweetest songs, lifts the track and creates the perfect conclusion to when your heartstrings break. That was done in one take. Stevie LaFollette did that, the little classical thing. And then we had nobody who could play that on keyboards live because Stevie was on bass or it would have been the time after he left the band. So I ended up playing that on trumpet for live. So what we did for that was we sort of, this was informed by um, In My Life, the Beatles, where, um, where they slow down the track. We slow it down to where it's like an, Stevie's playing it slower, like an octave lower. And then when you speed it up, it has that... That kind of thing. That's pretty much what we were going for there. And I remember we had a couple of folks visiting at the point in the studio where... This was in Tiny Telephone. And I remember we just tracked it, and he did it once, and it was done. It was like one take. Wow, that was pretty cool. Stevie LaFollette was definitely the best keyboard player we ever had in the band. And he only ended up playing two shows on keyboards. It was um, when our one of our keyboard players had quit, and then he ended up quitting after that. I feel like this is one, too, where, where Miles would have a title for a song long before the song lyrics were written. That wasn't always the case. Sometimes we'd have a song that we'd call something else completely, and then the lyrics would be done, and then it's a different thing. But I think this was one where it was like the title was there first, and then. But I'm not sure. God, I loved that session. That was my. I think that was my favorite two days is recording those strings. Just because um, we were in the practice space until then, in this shitty room, just ugh terrible bands trying to fight with them and i guess the bait you know we're just going to do direct stuff today you know and then getting into this big room with a full string section steve had mapped it out so he was conducting them we were i was rolling the tape 
And just hearing what I was hearing coming through, I was like, oh my God, this is like so much more than I expected that we could capably do on our own kind of thing at the time, at least. Just hearing that that room, this ambience come in with the strings and just, oh, it's so great. <laughs> I love it. For the album art, Karofsky would work on the design with future Beulah member Bill Evans. He was the friend of Pat's that joined the band after um, the record, before we started touring in 99. You know, we had thrown the kitchen sink on the record. How can we do it without having like 27 people on stage or whatever? Because you can't really, it's kind of like hard to do that in tour you know so we needed a second keyboard player to cover more of the things that we could amalgamate enough and then of course just we're definitely louder live we make up for anything else that we lacked in subtlety by just rocking out but so bill evans um was a friend of pat's i through visalia i think they grew up together in visalia and so he did the artwork for it. Miles's direction was do like a Japanese line drawing of like a lake and a mountain. And so we did. The band was signed with the Chicago-based independent label, Sugar Free Records, who at that point had released records by indie pop band Wheat and the Mekons' John Langford. The label would release When Your Heartstrings Break on March 9, 1999. And following its release, both the record and the band would begin to garner some much-deserved attention. We took off because of it. We did a lot of opening tours for bigger bands. Like, we opened for Guided by Voices in the UK. We opened for Wilco here in the States, in the through the Midwest, which really helped us later. We also opened for the Apples one more time in the summer of 99. Yeah, it was all opening slots, though, I think, for 99. But they were big exposure opening slots. But, like, you know, the band would get paid 250 for the show. So, like, six ways. That doesn't split very well six ways. So it was a crossroads for me personally. Yeah, it was just hard because I had to juggle jobs and stuff. There wasn't a lot of money then, so it made it kind of stressful. It's sort of like you're like, are you all in or what? You know, it's one of those where it's one thing when you're just playing a handful of shows here and there. But we were starting to take off. But, but yeah, it was just the beginning. We played a lot in 99, especially in the fall. And so I think I was gone for maybe we were on the road for maybe two months, like that, which is nothing compared to some bands. But for us, it was new and you know, we getting on each other's nerves. And, but it was something to build on, for sure. The band would eventually sign with the legendary Southern label Capricorn Records, who by the 90s entered a partnership with the major label Warner Brothers Records and would experience commercial success with acts such as Cake, 311, and Kenny Chesney. The band would enter Tiny Telephone in June of 2000, to record their When Your Heartstrings Break follow-up. But before they could make their Capricorn Records debut, the label would fold. Beulah, along with other recent signees The Glands and Jucifer, would go over to Capricorn founder Phil Walden's new venture, Velocet Records, who would release The Coast Is Never Clear on September 11, 2001. Two years later, 
the band would release their fourth album, Yoko. This would ultimately be the band's final record, as they would disband in August of 2004. In 2010, Karoski would release his only solo album to date, The Desert of Shallow Effects, on Major Domo Records. The album would include a number of contributions by his former bandmates, and in April of that same year, Beulah would briefly play together again as Karoski's surprise backing band on four songs recorded for the San Francisco website, The Bay Bridged. Thus far, this has been the band's only reunion. During their time together, Beulah were able to create a body of work that showed a band continually progressing while also maintaining those essential elements that made the group special from the beginning. This is especially true of When Your Heartstrings Break, a record full of ambition and DIY spirit that exemplifies what is truly possible. You know, after all this time, I consider it a personal sense of pride in many ways, just because... I mean, it's considered by a lot of our fans to be their favorite, at least a lot of the early fans. Um, and I can say, I recorded that shit, man. That's not bad for an amateur, you know. It was stressful for me a lot at the time, especially at the end when we were doing the vocals and stuff because we were running out of time and I was just getting fried. It's working a day job at the same time. And so it was a struggle, but it was a, it was worth it, you know, in, in hindsight. We took sort of the DIY recording, home recording thing as far as we could on our own with that record. And I think we did a pretty good job. Um, seeing it, seeing some good reviews of it was pretty gratifying. Although, you know, I don't, in hindsight, now I'm just like, who cares? But like back then, it was like, wow, we're getting good reviews. It's awesome, you know. You know, I think it pretty much captures who we were. Although it didn't really capture us live so much. The later records would, especially, um, I guess Yoko was really more of a live representation of what we were. We intentionally did that to be a live thing. Every record was a little different, you know, and I'm proud of the body of work, too, for that reason. You know, we had our little four-track thing in the beginning where it was just the two of us, and then we expanded it on our own for the second and the third one was, okay, let's build on the second one, but like in a studio where somebody else is getting yelled at for the IT stuff. And, uh, and I could just concentrate on playing. That record for me was all about the parts that I could play and stuff. And then Yoko was the live thing. So yeah, I mean, every record in, in many ways stands out on his own. I'm really proud of Heartstrings just because it really, I think Miles would disagree about the songs, but just the the sound of what we were doing and what we were trying to do was kind of the apex of what we could do on our own. And then we took it a few steps beyond that into where we could have professionals help us or whatever, without losing, hopefully, the sense of what we had before that. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Bill Swan for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream When Your Heartstrings Break and more from Beulah on the various streaming platforms. Seek this stuff out. 
It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.